The scripture reading this morning comes from the 17th Psalm. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from my lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of the Lord. God's faithfulness to his people is complicated. The way we see God act in our lives can be complicated at times. Uh, Again, we find David in this psalm completely surrounded and seemingly without hope. And it's a common theme throughout the Christian scriptures, a theme we don't like to meditate on too often. But we see it in every biblical epic. If we look carefully, we see God's people often surrounded, often without hope in this world, and yet finding hope through their experience of walking with this awesome God. And that's not just a theological, doctrinal, or scriptural truth. That's a human truth. (laughs) That's something we've all experienced if you have been in the faith for any period of time and you've potentially had people in your life ask you, how can you hold on to this faith in this moment? Why why do you still continue? Why do you persist in pursuing this God or pursuing your relationship to this church or community? Why? What's the point? What good has it done you? 
And all it takes is a few moments to recall the number of times that has been asked of God's people in the scriptures. Martin Rinkart was a 17th century Lutheran minister. He uh, moved to the city of uh, Eidelberg in Germany uh, in around 1636, about halfway through and at the pinnacle of the Thirty Years' War in Central Europe. And that city was a walled city, and so it became a haven for refugees. Uh, It became overcrowded, the battle-wounded, the, those who were affected by the incredible violence of that war found that city to be a place of refuge and in that city that was bursting at the seams, plague and pestilence spread. And by 1636, when he arrived, he was performing 50 funerals a day, including eventually the funerals of his family and his wife. And in that one year, he performed 4,000 funerals as the only Lutheran minister left in the region. And at the end of that year, he penned the now famous hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. And the first verse goes like this, Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Martin Rinkart recognized that God's faithfulness was complicated in the midst of suffering and struggle. And yet, it was a sure faith. We're going to look at how God's faithfulness is shown, how it's revealed to be shown in this Psalm 17. First of all, in the midst of confrontation and conflict. Secondly, in the context of covenant. And thirdly, how it produces confidence in the believer. We're going to look at faithfulness in the midst of confrontation and conflict, in the context of covenant and in how it produces confidence. Now, this is, the, this is actually the first sermon in a two-part series on this psalm. So, uh, you're not going to get satisfaction regarding a few of the themes in this psalm, in this one sermon. Uh, there is something to be said, and there's a sermon to be preached on David's confidence at the beginning of his prayer, and David's confidence in his performance of a faithful godly life of a Hebrew man. The the whole first few verses are David talking about what he has done to earn a hearing in the courts of the Lord. We're not going to focus on that as much today because I'm looking at the bigger picture of this psalm and the main theme, which I believe is God's faithfulness. And the reason why I believe that is the main theme is this. David lists off all of his accolades and his accomplishments, which we shouldn't Uh, devalue, but he lists them off, but it is not helping him in this situation. Everything that David has done well for the sake of the Lord, all of his just works, all of his just deeds, all of his accomplishments are not helping him fall asleep 
<laughs> on this night. He is looking for a deeper confidence than in himself. He says in verse 3, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. And this is another common theme in David. David had a hard time sleeping at night with all the stress in his life. If you can identify with that, say amen. Okay. He says, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. I'm a good Hebrew boy. <laughs> Hear me out. He's saying, look at how I have lived my life. I, I don't deserve this. My family doesn't deserve this, what is happening to us. Now, we all have had moments of trial, some more poignant than others, and we all have shared this feeling of, what have I done to deserve this? Worked so hard to raise these kids. Why are they walking away? I've, I've worked so hard to, to save up this chunk of money to take us into retirement, and now I'm ill, and it's all going away. The list goes on and on. What, and inevitably, we end up in that, what have I done to deserve this? This isn't fair. And this is not a Christian problem, church. This is a human problem. Every secularist, every agnostic, every atheist out there who comes upon hard times, the first response is, this isn't fair. Why do I deserve this? If you remember um, back to the 90s, you remember the illustrious and notorious career of uh, heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson. Uh, he, had, he had a decade of glory uh, with intermittent uh, problems that were popularized, uh, his violence, his womanizing, and it kind of all came to a head in 1997 when he was fighting Evander Holyfield, and uh, I think it was the 10th round, he bit off a chunk of Evander Holyfield's ear, remember that? Shocked the sports world and uh, subsequently lost that fight. Uh, and then his career began to spiral out of control. He ended up in jail. He tried to make a comeback a couple of different times. It just didn't work out. He, he just was in too much trouble all the time. There is a documentary made on Mike Tyson's life in 1990, or I'm sorry, in 2008. It's on Netflix. You can watch it. And he's interviewed in the video, uh, and he's uh, interviewed about that fight with Evander Holyfield. And Mike Tyson says, I'm really a good person. I just went insane in that moment. Now, we could laugh at that, but if you can identify with that, say amen. I'm a good person, all right? I just lost my mind for a moment. If you have teenagers, you know what I'm, I don't care. You don't have to acknowledge me right now. I know the truth about you. If you have teenagers, you know the feeling of thinking, I'm a good person, I just, I lost my mind. 
I am sorry I yelled at you. I am sorry I threw that thing. I am sorry I slammed the door. You feel like the teenager, right? I'm a good person, son, daughter. I just lost my mind for a moment. The, the director of the film, James Toback, says this about Mike Tyson in reflecting on making the documentary. He says, Mike is a fundamentally very, very good human being. That doesn't mean he hasn't done bad things. Listen, we all believe we're very, very fundamentally good human beings. But it doesn't help us sleep at night. It doesn't soothe us in our pain. Now, we don't know when this particular psalm was written. We know that David has a checkered history himself. We don't know if this psalm was written after his treason and murderous behavior. We don't know if it was written while he was on the run from Saul. We don't know when it was written, but we do know us, and we do know others, and we do know history, and we do know the biblical record. And we know that when you say you done good, it ain't helping you very much. David is claiming that he's really a good guy. He's very, very much fundamentally a good human being, <laughs> is his testimony before the Lord in this moment. And yet, in verse 9, he is asking for protection from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. The, the picture Dave had, David has painted here is he's sort of like this innocent gazelle who's been trapped by a pride of lions. Right? And the, the, the poetry of the psalm goes back and forth between these kind of animals prowling and lurking, ready to strike, and people hurling insults and arrogantly cursing David and his people. And his, his response to this sense of being trapped, to the sense of being surrounded is, why me? Why me? I've, I've done everything you said I should do. And church, this is where we need to get straight if we're not straight on this topic right now. No matter the degree of your faithfulness to God as a parent, as a church member, as a neighbor, as an employee, as an employer, no matter your degree of faithfulness to God, there will always be confrontation for you and for me. There will always be suffering and conflict and trial. And these are precisely the moments that God wants to show his faithfulness to us. It may come, this kind of confrontation and suffering, suffering may come precisely because of your good works or my good works as an attack from the enemy. Or it may come because God has allowed it in order to move us toward good works. This confrontation will come and we will suffer now, the secular world knows this inevitability in an even deeper way sometimes than the church of Christ. And the secular world has done everything it can to account for this kind of inevitability. 
If you look at Western philosophy, you will see this theme taken up repeatedly. And perhaps one of the greatest Western philosophers there is, and when I say great, I mean notoriously great, Friedrich Nietzsche, his whole presentation was anti-Christian, anti-religion, specifically anti-Christian. And he was trying to account for what he viewed as nihilism and in some ways trying to usher in nihilism, the, the idea that life is meaningless. In his framework of understanding how and why things happen, he says, you know, there is no meaning to suffering ultimately. There's no reason for us to suffer and there's no reason for us to question why we suffer. And his answer to that simple question, why do we suffer, is found in his piece called The Twilight of the Idols, in other words, the end of Christendom. And he is known for this famous quote, you may not know is Nietzsche, what does not kill me makes me stronger. That's the secular response to suffering. What does not kill me makes me stronger. Now, this is one of the quintessential thinkers of our time and whose thought and philosophy, much of our own philosophy, much of our governmental practices, much of our policy practices is based on his kind of thinking. And this is what he can come up with to help us deal with suffering. That which does not kill me makes me stronger. It doesn't take but 30 seconds to realize that there are a number of things that will not kill you, but will make you significantly weaker in your life. Just think about disease. Ask someone suffering from some kind of mental suffering or disorder. Ask someone who is suffering from a brain disease or any other kind of debilitating disease if they feel stronger for the sake or for the fact that they're not yet dead from this disease. Ask someone who has suffered incredible violence. Talk to one of our troops who have come home from desert sands in another country who have lost a leg or two or a leg in both arms or any combination of those things and ask that gentleman or woman if they feel stronger for having lost those limbs. Ask someone who has suffered through a childhood of traumatic abuse and ask them if they feel stronger as a person as they suffer and struggle through having normal relationships with others. Ask anyone in the room who's older than they were last year and is starting to feel the back troubles and the knee troubles and the hip troubles and ask them if they feel stronger for having those. You get it, okay? There are actually an innumerable amount of things that cause us suffering and actually make us a lot weaker and can actually mess us up pretty bad. And so we take this kind of quintessential thought and theme of our culture which has come down into our music and our poetry and the way we run our government and all kinds of things and guess what? It is built on a faulty principle that makes no sense whatsoever. Christians have a much more robust view of suffering, confrontation, and conflict. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, Paul tells us 
It's not that the things that you suffer make you stronger. It's that the things that you, that under which you suffer work together for your good in some way, shape, or form, and ultimately to glorify God. And this is how we know that God's faithfulness will be shown to us in the context of confrontation and suffering and conflict. Now, this idea leads us inevitably, in the psalm especially, to the context, the larger context, under which we must understand this suffering. And that is the context of covenant. And covenant, the covenant concept is a very difficult concept for modern people to grasp. And it's a very difficult concept, unfortunately, even for modern Christians to grasp. The problem is that part of the reason we think confrontation shouldn't happen to us is because we've entered into a contract with a, with a higher power. We've, we've said to this God, I'll do my part if you do yours. In other words, our faith is too democratic. The Trinity, which we've sung about this morning, is not a representative government. The Trinity, God, the, in his triune power, has come to us as a covenantal husband, not a democratic candidate. And the scriptures give us a very different view of our faith than we are used to seeing. If we look at what David has said, the grounds upon which he stands as he calls to this God in verses 6 and 7, he says, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Now, David is using language. This is poetry that David has sat down to write. David is an expert in Hebrew thought and Hebrew history. And he is using key words in this poem to help us understand the whole context. When David uses the term steadfast love, you may have heard this term. It mean, it, the term in the Hebrew is hesed. You've heard this before, hopefully. Hesed is a kind of faithfulness and long-term loving kindness that is based on obligation and loyalty. It's not based on any kind of exchange. It's based on God's obligation to his people. David says, Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. That key word, right hand, is used often throughout the scriptures for those who have entered into a covenant with God and who are celebrating his faithfulness and bringing them through calamity. And so when we look at Exodus 15, Moses has broken into song after watching God save the Israelites through the Red Sea. And Moses says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And when David uses that term right hand in this psalm, he's picking up on that covenantal language and he's saying, I belong to the same family as Moses. I belong to the same covenant that you made, O Lord, because of your steadfast love with Moses. And that is the foundation I stand on as I ask you for help. In Deuteronomy 32, in verse 8, sorry, of Psalm 17, David says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. He is reflecting on Deuteronomy 32, which incidentally is another song of Moses 
Moses sings in prayer and celebration for providing a new leader, Joshua, to take the Israelites as Moses is about to die. And Moses says in verse 12 of chapter 32, the Lord has encircled him, his, his king, his people. He has cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And the picture that Moses paints here is of a mother eagle circling around her nest from far away and circling her young, always focused like a laser beam on those young uh, eaglets, right, who are potentially in danger but always just a swoop away from mom's protection. And David says, keep me as the apple of your eye just as you kept Moses and his people, the nation of Israel, as the apple of your eye as they were about to go into the promised land. David is making his appeal based on a loving covenant with a covenantal partner who holds all the cards. David realizes that even with his list of good works, he holds none of the cards. Not even his awesome works will get him out of the mess that he's in. Only God can do it. Now, the modern church has made a big mistake and not emphasizing this covenantal reality. We think oftentimes we're offering the gospel when really we're just offering a contract to people. There's a big difference between a covenant and a contract. A, contact, or a contract is based on an offer, an exchange of goods and services, whereas a covenant is based on a vow and a pledge to perform a duty whether or not the other performs his or her duty. A contract is reciprocal, give and take, whereas a covenant is unilateral. I will do this thing for you whether or not you do this thing for me. A contract is bound by time and resources, but a covenant is perpetual and extends past any particular amount of time. I fear that the majority of what we've come to know as the sinner's prayer, the different ways to organize that sinner's prayer have led people, unfortunately, into a sense of a contractual understanding of their relationship with God. It's not that the sinner's prayer is inaccurate to acknowledge that you're a sinner, to acknowledge that Jesus has come, that he has died, that he re was resurrected, then he's ascended on your behalf. These are all good statements to make, and yet they fail in the end to recognize that entering into this contract means that you will likely be suffering through the duration of this contract. And God's faithfulness will be shown to you in the context of this kind of covenantal bond. When I entered into covenant with my wife, those of you who are married in this room, I said, I will be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me. I will be faithful to you if you are ill. I will be faithful to you if you are not financially solvent. <laughs> I will be faithful to you in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, right? That's the heart of a covenant. The great Methodist minister offered this as a prayer for those who would come to Christ. John Wesley 
offered this prayer. He says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing or put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you. Exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. What a beautiful covenantal prayer from this man. David's request for help is pled in the context of covenant, not contract. God knows I am going to fail on my end of the bargain. God knows you are going to fail on your end, but his faithfulness will continue to be shown to you in that context precisely. That's the heart of that, the, that last song we sang there, for my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. That's the heart of our relationship with this God. Now, the covenantal bond that we find as the context for this kind of suffering that the Christian must go through produces a confidence. It's the last thing we're going to talk about. Produces a confidence between the parties and particularly the lesser party. And sometimes this confidence makes no practical sense. You may remember the story of Kayla Jean Mueller. She was a foreign um, aid worker. She worked with Doctors Without Borders in Syria, and she was taken captive in 2013 by ISIS, and she was subsequently executed in 2015. But she managed to smuggle a letter with some other prisoners that were released, and the letter made it back to her parents, and her parents released it to the media. And there's a portion of the letter that, of the letter that reads like this. I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I've come to a place in my experience where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there is no one else. By God and by your prayers, I am tenderly cradled. What Miss Mueller came to understand in her imprisonment was that she was not going to get what she wanted in her humanity, but she had everything that she needed relative to her whole person. And what she needed was the assurance and the peace that can only come in the context of a covenantal relationship. It's easy to interpret this passage as David just pleading for his life. Save me out of this situation, O Lord. But there's so much more to it. And if you pay attention, you will see the similarity with Mueller's testimony. David is confidently asking God to see him in his struggle. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Ultimately, he knows that this is his only reward. And you can see it in the contrast as he pleads for God to save him from his enemies. If you look at verse 13, 
As David begins to to get more active with this prayer and ask God to intervene, he says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand. O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. He says, You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. David is saying, my enemies have all this earthly reward. When they win against me, they just get more and more stuff. More and more stuff to pass down to future generations. And if we follow this line of thought, and David realizes that if he follows this line of thought, the battle we are in, the confrontations that come to us, the conflicts we find ourselves in, if we see them merely as battles, for stuff, then our whole life just becomes an attempt to get more stuff and to experience more stuff. And a battle of stuff, which David is realizing here, is simply causing us to enter into as many contracts as we can. Because these contractual relationships will yield things for us. As many contracts that we can enter into will be the degree to which we can get ahead. David is recognizing this as he looks at his enemies. God, you, you make their, their, their treasure chests full. They have so much, they just keep giving it to their children. And David could pray, I want that. I want that. I need more of that. Help me get that. And we can see that in our own lives. Bank accounts, professional accolades, political wins. Lord, if you give me this. Lord, if you give us this. Lord, if you get this person elected or that person elected. Lord, if you just do this, then we'll know that this contractual agreement is working on our behalf. And David, in this psalm, You can kind of see him come to his senses and he says, wait, this is not going to be how God shows his faithfulness to me. This is not going to be how he does not My confidence is not in treasure and children and material wealth and success. That's not where my confidence is. That's not where my fullness is. Now, sidebar, we in our tradition, this is a broadly speaking, are very, very, Critical, and I personally am very critical of the prosperity gospel movement. Now, there is there is a there is a doctrine and a theology attached to the prosperity gospel that I think needs to be refuted. But we're very critical of those churches and those kinds of people and pastors and how they live their lives. But church, you better check yourself, and I need to check myself. Are we functionally prosperity gospel adherents? Do we believe, do we live our lives that we are only seen by God, that we are only truly the apple of God's eye if we get what we want in this culture or if we get what we want in our households? Ask yourself, is your salvation tied up in your material wins and your cultural wins? David is brought up short and he realizes this can't be. This cannot be true. 
He imagines the wealth and happiness of his enemies. And in verse 15, we get this wake-up call. And he says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, right? When I come to my senses, I'll forget everything my enemy has. I'll forget all his power and wealth and treasure. And he says, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David severs his ties with the world in this moment. He is making this covenantal plea in the midst of this great confrontation, and he is saying, give me yourself, God. He's actually saying, I know you will give me yourself. I know that I will be satisfied and confident in knowing you. This is the covenantal promise made to those who trust God. We are not promised wealth. We are not promised property. We are not promised professional accolades. We are not even promised justice and a fair vote. We are promised none of these things. Church, we are promised confidence and satisfaction in the true and living God, period. That is it. Now, the Old Testament And this psalm provides the template for this kind of covenantal relationship, but the New Testament fills in all the details. The Christian message, to be truly Christian, this connection needs to be made. We have to see that God's covenantal promises are ultimately and completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign now, as the covenantal head, the one who makes this all, who helps us all make sense of this and the way he lived his life and now reigns. The Apostle Paul says of him in Colossians chapter 1, you know this verse, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And in this side of Psalm 17, if you desire to have satisfaction, if you desire to have the kind of satisfaction that David had, you have to think covenantally about this Jesus, not contractually. If you want to know who the covenant maker is, you have to spend time looking at this Jesus as he is presented to us in God's word. It's, it's the covenantal contract, right? It's the content of what's happening in this covenant. It's fulfilled in Christ. If we separate ourselves from it, if we don't spend time reading it and meditating upon it, you will slip into a contractual relationship with this God and you will not feel the kind of satisfaction that David is talking about. And so the question is, we ultimately meditate on the complicated nature of God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering is this. Has it become so complicated because we've contracted with Jesus? How many of us have said, okay, Lord, I will give you my devotion or I will renew my devotion if you just fix my family? If you just fix my kids, if you just help me get out of this work situation, if you just help my spouse to be more attentive, if 
you just help me pay off this debt? Are we trying to contract with the Lord? And that's a worthy topic of repentance. It's a, it's a worthy moment to return to our covenantal husband, the Lord Jesus, and ask him for help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meditation of David that rightly or gives us a, a correct view of how you interact with your people. Lord, we thank you for the order of salvation which has you coming to us and saving us. And we ask your forgiveness for getting things mixed up and thinking that somehow we could make an exchange with you for our satisfaction or thinking that somehow you will make some sort of exchange with us. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. When we have grown cold, when we have walked away, when we have doubted, you have been there for us. Lord, help us to resist the temptation of finding our worth in stuff. Help us to resist the temptation of pitting our material possessions and wealth against that of others. Lord, help us to resist the temptation of wielding political power and finding our wholeness spiritually in it. Lord, restore to us the simplicity of the joy of your salvation, the joy of knowing we have a spouse who will not abandon us. We thank you and we ask in his name, Jesus, amen.